we don't have one candidate that's going to appoint conservative justices who are going to overturn Roe versus Wade versus a candidate who won't. We have two candidates who are perfectly comfortable with abortion rights and one candidate who has said to get elected that he would appoint conservative justices, but the actual chance of him doing that is vanishingly small. Welcome to episode two of Depolarize. This is a little bit longer episode and gets a little bit more technical because we are talking about the Supreme Court. And quite frankly, legal arguments have to be technical. That's just the way that legal reasoning works. I hope that you guys will stick in there with us and enjoy it. But if you already know a bit about how the Supreme Court works, you can skip the first five minutes where Joe gives us a basic explanation. And if you only have... 20 minutes or so, skip ahead to around 33 minutes in and hear Joe's argument for why Trump will in fact not select conservative Supreme Court justices. I think that's the most interesting part of the episode. And just like the first episode with Jared, Joe will be accepting follow-up questions. You can submit those over email to depolarizepodcast at gmail.com or join our Facebook discussion group, which is called depolarize podcast discussion group great title all right enjoy the episode here we are we have my good old friend joe rose joe if you're a lawyer is it like joe rose esquire Is that your official title? It's not. No. Okay. Esquire is like an optional thing. And to be honest, like there's some, you know, some people look down on those lawyers who feel the need to put Esquire after their name. Is it sort of like introducing yourself at a party as, hi, I'm Sir Paul McCartney? Yes, It, it is like that. And also doctor. So Right. Hello, I'm Dr. James Marshall. Nice to meet you. (laughs) So we're here to talk about the Supreme Court. And, you know, this podcast is about polarization. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is because you have what is a less popular opinion amongst the people that I tend to know, which is that you in general are in favor of conservative Supreme Court justices. And Mm -hmm. we're going to get to later on what that means for your political stance in terms of this election. But really, we're just going to try and focus on the arguments about Supreme Court justices. This is obviously a huge, a huge deciding factor. And it's also a very polarizing factor uh, in American politics. Yeah, it is. Um, Some smart people have written articles about how the divide about the Supreme Court and some of the social issues that the court has addressed could be responsible for a lot of the polarization just across the board. Well, and it's interesting too, I mean, with my limited knowledge of the subject, I, I feel like there is a difference now where people generally feel like some of the biggest decisions that they are most concerned about, which maybe are theoretically supposed to be uh, decided at the congressional level end up being decided by the court. Yeah. And also with Congress being so deadlocked these days, it's like, well, at least we can get the Supreme court justices we want, and then maybe something will get done. Yeah. Can you just give us like a civics one one here, two or three minutes? What is the Supreme court? What is it supposed to do? And what does it do now? If that's different. 
Sure. So the Supreme Court is the court of last resort in the United States. It's basically, it's a group of judges, the third branch of government. You know, we have the Congress, which is the legislative branch, the executive branch, which is the president, and then the court. Yeah. The Supreme Court, which is the legis- uh, the uh, judicial branch. It's nine guy, nine people, uh, men and women, appointed for life, who um, decide uh, important cases and controversies. That's what the, co- the term the Constitution uses is cases and controversies. Okay. Which are basically disputes between two people or two or a person in a government or a per- two co- co- companies or a person in a company. Basically, like they, they resolve disputes. But in doing so, they have to interpret the law. And the law that they're most famous for interpreting is the highest law of the land, the Constitution. The Constitution. And they also create precedent at the highest level of the courts, right? Right, exactly. So a court's decision, you know, in the moment only applies to the parties before it, you know, the two people having the dispute. But when they write their opinion resolving that dispute, it creates principles and teachings that subsequent courts deciding subsequent disputes are supposed to look back on and apply. So it kind of creates this tradition of of interpretation. What's going on right now that there are eight instead of nine Supreme Court justices? So what's going on right now is, um, you know, just background. Justice Scalia, who uh, had been on the court for a while, uh, passed away suddenly last year. And so normally there are nine justices, so there's never, there's infrequently a deadlock, you know, there's an odd number so they can vote and um, decide cases that way. Uh, After Justice Scalia passed away, um, we now have eight, so you can have a four to four deadlock. Um, And the Senate is basically stalling on appointing or confirming Justice, uh, President Obama's like replacement for Justice Scalia because the Senate is controlled by Republicans and, you know, they don't want to cooperate with President Obama's uh, and his appointment. So the practical consequence is basically if there is a case that um, is sort of a controversial issue and the court splits four to four, then they don't decide it. Basically, whatever the lower court had decided just stands and that's the end of the matter. Okay, Joe, now that we have established that you are not an Esquire, you're just a regular lawyer, let's hear more about you. Where'd you go to school? Where'd you go to law school? Where do you work? Where else had you worked before, et cetera? I went to the University of Chicago for college. I studied a fake major called Law, Letters, and Society. Yes, that's right. We used to (laughs) laugh about that. I love that that was a major. I studied human rights and religion. That was the what I was interested in at the time. Cool. From college, I graduated in 2005 and I went to work for the Department of Justice doing antitrust work as a paralegal in San Francisco. Uh, and then I went to law school at uh, Berkeley. Great. Um, and so I graduated and then um, I've been working at the same law firm ever since. What's it called? It's called Gibson, Dunn and Crutcher, LLP. Okay, let's talk about Justice Scalia. Like everything now in American culture, when he died within five minutes, it was extremely polarized and politicized on either side. And everybody knew that they were supposed to either think that he was the most racist justice ever, or they were supposed to think that he was single-handedly upholding the constitution against the evils of liberalism. I mean, that, that was my impression that it was like, 
all of a sudden everybody was a, a Scalia expert and there was no middle ground. And then these stories started coming out when people had time to write them about how him and Ruth Bader Ginsburg were like best buds and almost always disagreed on like every case that they yeah. worked on. So I think it would be really interesting to hear your two cents on Scalia as somebody who comes from the more conservative side. I think what you say about Ginsburg and Scalia is like a really, it's something that I was going to mention if you hadn't, because it's such a, it's such an interesting, they have such an interesting relationship, very yeah. close friends and really a hopeful story because she Justice Ginsburg is really like the, the line of the left on the court right now. Right. And Scalia, obviously, is the leader of the um, conservative justices. Um, Scalia, in my opinion, was a, you know, and I, and I think a lot of liberal people have the same view, liberal legal scholars, that he was the best writer on the court. I mean, he, okay. he, he was an exceptional writer um, and he had a lot of passion so I admired his. I admired his skill. I admired his writing. I admire that about him that he that he really made it a dynamic process. Um, and I admire a lot of his opinions um, because, like you you said earlier, I do come from a position of admiration for the conservative approach to uh, the court, and he is sort of the leader. Was the leader of that before right. he passed. So uh, yeah, I miss him. <laughs> A lot of people mm. miss him and, you know, including Justice Ginsburg and, and people on the left. You know, one of the one of the specific examples I remember that got quoted a lot when the case came out and then also after his death was him saying something to the effect of, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, if poor black students, you know, can't get into better schools, they they shouldn't sort of slow the whole thing down. And that was interpreted by a lot of people as racist. Yeah, um, I know what comment you're talking about, um, and uh, I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was something along those lines. Yeah. Um, I mean, he, I think he was responding to a question, and his point, of course, was, you know, his view of affirmative action was race shouldn't be a factor one way or the other, right? Okay. And, and this is a view that I actually have, which is that I think in sort of playing the long game, it's problematic to allow race to be a factor in like college admissions in the short term, even if it, you know, helps people who have been traditionally disadvantaged, the precedent it sets in the long term for even allowing race to be a factor could be, can be a problem. And so that's, that's his point. So I don't so you think I he was taken a little out of context there. I think it was taken out of context. I do not think that he was, he's a racist. Um, right. I, I'm sure Justice Ginsburg does not think that he was a racist. Yeah, that's kind of a good piece of evidence. Uh, well, and that's really what this podcast is about, is there's going to be sort of inflammatory arguments on every side, you know, on either side yeah. of most issues. And, you know, we're trying to, I'm trying to weed out for myself even just what are the bogus ones. And it does seem a little bit beyond the pale that he's just like a rampant racist who thinks that black kids should not have good opportunities. So let's assume, let's give him the benefit of the doubt since he's not here to answer for himself. And let's assume that he was meaning something like you're saying, give us that argument. You know, it's not, when people talk about like institutional racism, you know, it's sort of like, it's a buzzword. And it's like, what does that mean? I'll, right. I'll tell you what it means. I think this was in the paper the other day. Research has shown that even at a, preschool age, 
black kids are treated differently. Jeez Louise. Even by, um, there was a study and I, I'm probably getting it wrong exactly what the study said, but it was basically the gist of it was well-meaning like preschool teachers. Okay. When faced with black kids and white kids, right. Especially black boys. I mean, who are really the focus of a lot of discrimination. Yeah. Um, they would report that like the black boys in preschool, these are tiny children needed quote unquote more attention than the white boys. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. And which was code for like, they were behave like misbehaving. Right. More. Of course. Yeah. And then it, when it turned out like there was zero misbehavior by anybody like, Oh my gosh. And, um, and these are like people who are trying to like, help the kids and be teachers and stuff. Right. It's just so like ingrained, even from a, such a young age that like black young men are just like expected to be misbehaving. And it, like that sets them on a trajectory that, you know, it's undeniable. Like that sets them on a different trajectory and a worse trajectory through their life than, um, than others. It's important that like to understand, like even conservatives like me, who I have problems with affirmative action, I think like, if that's what we're talking about, when we're talking about institutional racism. Like it's real. Yeah, it you're not exists. denying. You're not denying yeah. the lack of a level playing field. You're saying that. You're saying that you want the playing field leveled over time, and that, in your opinion, over time, affirmative action actually will not help level the playing field. Yeah, that that's part of it. The other part of it is I do I do at the same time think that like companies, like employers, yeah, like private individuals. Like there's nothing, I have no problem with them trying to like affirmatively hire minorities, Uh, but not through a government mandate. It's it's the, when the government starts doing it where I start to get skeptical. So my argument is basically like, first of all, I think that the constitution prohibits the government from making decisions based on race. Okay. Okay. What you just give, just really quick, give us one piece of evidence for that. So I, the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which was passed after the Civil War, basically guarantees um, equal protection under the law, okay, yeah. without regard to race, okay? Okay, so, and yeah. it doesn't say, like, without regard to the dominant race or without regard to um, any particular race. It just says without mm. regard to race. So I think that, like, you, just reading what that says, you can't have discrimination in either direction by the government. Could could the argument be made though on the other side that I guess I, guess I see I see where you're going to go with this. Where I want to go is, well, are they really being equally protected? But we're not talking about legal protection. We're talking about economic opportunity and educational opportunity. That's what you're going to say, right? Yes, okay. economic opportunity, educational opportunity, social opportunity. I mean, everything. Those are not the same as legal protection. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, well. I think that that is how I how I look at it. So, and and just one one thing to keep in mind is, um, and this is something sort of a weird quirk of where the Supreme Court has addressed this. It's actually illegal for the government, and and a lot of these cases happen with the with the public universities, right? Because the public universities use want to use affirmative action, but they are organs of the state. And so unlike the, Harvard or Princeton, who can exactly. let in, who can do whatever they want, the public universities run up against legal issues because, yeah, because they're run by the government. Okay. And so Harvard, you know, is free to have a quota say like, we have to admit 10,000 black students. Yeah. It is illegal 
under current law, under current precedent, for a public university to have a quota system. Okay. okay. And that has been the case for a little while. I, I don't remember the date of the decision, but um, it's been the case for a while. Um, the most recent affirmative action case was not about whether or not there could be a quota. It was about whether or not race could be a factor in like a multi-factor test. Okay. Now, is that evidence that the affirmative action side lost a battle and is trying to get a less firm version of it for the affirmative action side is quota the strictest affirmative action and one of many factors is a softer version that they'd still like to have passed yeah i think that's right and sort I, of like I think partial birth abortion versus full abortion or something like that where it's like <laughs> yeah. a lesser i just mean at a legal level it's a lesser victory but it's still a victory they would consider it yeah i mean look to be honest it's like i i see the sort of splitting the baby um, as kind of a weak approach. Like, mm. it doesn't make logical sense to me to say, well, we can't have quotas, but we can have it be a factor among other factors. Like, legally speaking, like, what is the difference between those two things? Um, I think that, like, look, if you if you think affirmative action is okay under the 14th Amendment, like, then you should be able to have a quota. Uh, mm. Because your view is, like, that the 14th Amendment applies to remedy past discrimination and like that's how you interpret it right you're the, the question is when the 14th amendment says equal protection under the law does equal protection under the law include under its umbrella remedying past unequal protection under the law because you do have to concede that when blacks were enslaved they did not have equal protection under the law right, right. With, with regard to race so yeah. then is, is that where the argument hinges of like, look, we understand, like, would a, would a liberal uh, legal scholar say, look, I understand that the technical language here is legal protection under the law, but given the fact that minorities did not have that legal protection, there is an additional moral onus on us to sort of pay them back for the harm that we did. Is that an argument that would be made? That's the argument for affirmative action, that you cannot obtain equal protection under the laws until you sort of tilt the scale of the other direction. I see. Yeah. Otherwise, you will just sort of whatever um, disadvantages were sort of entrenched already will just kind of linger uh, for a long time. Or maybe even get worse, right? Like become exponentially greater sort of in the way that like capitalism needs to be checked by you know, some regulation or some progressive tax system or else the wealthy become wealthier. You can imagine an argument from the left saying same thing will happen with injustice. The ghettos will stay ghettos and their housing prices will stay flat while the white neighborhoods will go up. And I mean, you know, and I I think it's reasonable. Like it's a perfectly reasonable argument. Let me, let me ask you for an example of a a racist um, tactic that, um, and let me know what you think where this fits. So, Mortgage companies redlining, which is illegal, and I, I guess some of it still goes on. Um, but you know, there was a lot of it, especially I believe in like the 80s and 90s. Um, yeah. where if you're an African American family, you basically are either not going to be given a loan or you are far less likely to be given a loan, and your sort of credit rating needs to be higher, your debt to income ratio needs to be uh lower. Uh, would you say that a court deeming redlining to be unconstitutional, is that because 
a company redlining is not affording them equal protection under the law. Am I phrasing this wrong? So there's a little, there's a little bit of a a problem with this example. Okay. okay? Great. Let's hear it. Which is basically this, the rights in the constitution, the right to equal protection under the law and the rights in the bill of rights, they, they only limit the actions of governments. So state, local and federal government. So private banks are not, Exactly. So a private individual or private business has no obligations to avoid discriminating under the Constitution. Now, there is something called the Civil Rights Act, which right. is a law passed by Congress. It's not the Constitution okay. that does prohibit discrimination by businesses. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are other laws that Congress has passed to f- sort of fill that out. That law has not been passed under the 14th Amendment or any of the stuff in the Constitution that has to do with equal protection or race. That's actually justified under the commerce power of Congress, the power of Congress to regulate commerce. I remember this when I, I had to take a philosophy of law class when I was getting my degree. And I remember this is what, this is like the most bizarre thing about modern constitutional law is so much comes from commerce clause because the commerce clause if i'm right regulates any uh good that crosses state lines right is that right uh well it's it's much much broader than that commerce clause basically says congress has the power to regulate com- commerce among the several states it's been interpreted basically in terms of effects so it's basically like if an activity like affects has an effect on commerce between the states yeah, yeah. then congress has the power to regulate it and that that really turns into like the broadest possible i mean just to give you an example one of my least favorite supreme court decisions is yeah. gonzalez versus reich the basic gist of that is that this is the california medical marijuana case okay and it basically says congress has the power to make it a crime to literally just grow for personal use and possess marijuana, even if you never sold it, you never gave it to anybody. Because you because could. Like, because you could, and it could affect the interstate market for marijuana, and it's like this very attenuated like right. effect. Um, and it's like, if, if that, if that, if Congress can do that, then they can literally like do anything they want. So what you're it, saying it, is smoke them while you've got them. Yeah, I mean, I, to be honest, I, you know, my view, my view, my like conservative, quote unquote conservative, this is like a funny thing when, because when you're talking about conservative legal, yeah. uh, conservative legal approach, it doesn't always line up nicely with like conservative politics. Well, hey, you know what? That's the whole point of this podcast is to show yeah. <laughs> that we needn't line up with our jerseys yeah. freshly laundered, uh, you know, ready to go yeah. to, to battle for every issue that our side believes. So that's great. So, all right. So, so yeah. it doesn't line up. So anyway, back to the Civil Rights Act. That's the power that Congress used to pass the Civil Rights Act. So obviously some of that extension of the Commerce Clause we would say is really great, but then other is suspect. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that most most conservatives and liberals agree that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is yeah, like a good law. It's um, great, yeah. Now, there are some conservatives, a few, who criticize it because it takes a broad approach to the power of the federal government. Okay. They don't, it's, that criticism doesn't come from a place of thinking that, like, black people don't deserve the same rights. Right. Uh, at least in my experience, maybe there are a few, I mean, there are some crazies out there. Yeah. But, um, 
but but it comes from more of a place of this sets even though the uh, result is good like it sets a bad precedent in terms of the power of the federal government right okay because that's one of the things that like sort of we talk about like how conservative legal approach doesn't always line up with politics and one of the conservative traditional conservative legal approaches is limited powers of the federal government yeah um and it doesn't line up with conservative politics sometimes when conservatives want like a a powerful federal government to like do what they want right, right. Like, like make marijuana illegal no matter what or um i was thinking about this actually when watching the presidential debate um in in the days leading up to it because trump like made this absurd I, I mean, I shouldn't use too hyperbolic language because we are trying to, you know, well, yeah. <laughs> come together and bridge, whatever, depolarize, bridge the gap. But he made this, talked about like instituting like nationwide stop and frisk, right? Yeah. And uh, fortunately, we have conservative Supreme Court decisions that say the president doesn't get to tell local cops how to do their job. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. And um, in fact, there's this decision, it's United States, uh, Prince versus United States, and it had to do with the Brady Bill, which was a handgun control law in yeah. the 90s. And basically part of the Brady Bill was like local law enforcement officers have to like institute these like background checks. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now you think like liberals are like, yeah, sounds great. Uh, you know, background checks for handguns. Perfect. But the court said, no, like the federal government doesn't get to like force local law enforcement to do one thing or the other because mm-hmm. we have a federal system. And the dissents, this is very interesting, the dissents to that case were from the liberal justices who said that, well, wait, Congress actually has this power under the Commerce Clause. And the conservatives on the court said, no, there's the Tenth Amendment. I mean, there's a complicated legal argument, but basically, like, federal government doesn't get to force local cops to do things one way or the other. And I thought about this because now sort of the tables are starting to turn. Like, it's that decision and that precedent that will protect us if Trump gets elected from him basically telling all cops around the country, time to institute stop and frisk. I mean, look, a lot. there's been a lot of study as to why crime rates dropped. Um, but it's very clear. I mean, this is neither here nor there, I guess. But look, crime rates are at like all time low, which is kind of insane. Yeah. Um, it's kind of crazy because if you listen to the rhetoric coming from like Donald Trump, you'd think that we were living in like escape from New York or something, which yeah. by the way is one of my favorite movies. Um, noted for the record. Yeah. I love the John Carpenter, oh, the soundtrack of those old John Carpenter movies. Um, I just, I, I'm a sucker so for it. The sound we're hearing right now in your microphone is you, uh, twisting back your wine bottle and getting nostalgia getting nostalgic over films you like but back to the matter at hand joe don't get yeah. too loose here bud we Sorry. need you to focus yeah. <laughs> yeah, i'm so before we get into trump because i do think it's interesting to hear why you do not want to vote for him, even though you want a conservative Supreme Court. 
Um, but I'm going to tease that for later. Let's talk about Citizens United because this is something that we've texted about on our little group thread. And my understanding of the common wisdom is, you know, if you are a Bernie Sanders type, let's say broadly speaking, if you want money out of politics, even if you are a Trump lover in in the sense of he's not beholden to special interests, he can self-fund, I don't want another person who's taking corporate money for their campaign. If you want that changed, then what you want is you want Citizens United overturned. And you kind of said to me, no, that's not what Citizens United says or does. So make your case. So Citizens United, I think it's really important to think about what the case was before the court in Citizens United. It was a, Citizens United was a corporation, okay? They had put together a film criticizing Hillary Clinton. Okay. okay. And they wanted to run it on cable television. They wanted to like buy time on cable TV and run this film criticizing Hillary Clinton. Okay. Like a, like a documentary, like a smear documentary or whatever. I forget what it was called. It was like Hillary Clinton, the movie or, you know, something like that. The real name of the group, they, they abbreviated the group, but the real full name of the corporation is Citizens United Against Pantsuits. Yeah. <laughs> So they were really anti-Hillary. Yeah. I mean, think of it as like a conservative version of Michael Moore, but they wanted to do it close to an election. Okay. Which, you know, makes sense. Obviously makes sense. And then the McCain-Feingold, it's like the bipartisan campaign finance something. It said you can't, you're not allowed to do quote unquote independent expenditures within a certain number of days of an election. Okay. But basically the court said, look, you know, this is political speech. You're just, you're running a documentary criticizing a candidate. I mean, there's really no question that it was political speech. Right. The court said, look, this is the very core of what the First Amendment is supposed to protect is this type of speech. And so passing a law that says you're not allowed to run, you're not allowed to buy time on cable TV to run this documentary close to an election violates the First Amendment. What it did not decide, and this is, I think, where a lot of people sort of a lot of the times the mistake happens with Citizens United. It did not decide for the first time that corporations had a right to speak. That was uh, already recognized as a right under the First Amendment. Okay, so already before Citizens United, corporations had freedom of speech just like individuals did. Right, yeah. If that's not the thing that changed whether or not corporations had freedom of speech... Why has there been, or has there been, such an influx of cash from large corporations and like corporate owned super PACs or corporate funded super PACs toward conservative political candidates since Citizens United? What explains that rush? So, um, I kind of take issue with like the way you phrase your question. Sure. And if I'm wrong, please correct me if I'm wrong. I'm just giving my impression. This is another important distinction, which is. What was not at issue in Citizens United was contributions, okay? In terms of two campaigns or super PACs or candidates or whatever. To to candidates. Okay, to candidates, okay. It didn't decide anything about a company, corporation's ability to contribute to a candidate. There are still limits on that. Citizens United did not affect those limits. Okay. What it did was it said, you can't have a law that restricts the ability of a independent corporation, labor union, association from speaking on their own 
And just because they're speaking in favor or against a candidate doesn't mean their right to speak should be limited. And so what you've seen since then is a big explosion of um, all of that independent speech. Now, there people have sort of questioned how independent that speech actually is. Yeah, I mean, you, you definitely would think like um, if ExxonMobil didn't have a certain right before and now does have that certain right, they're not going to be running pro-Hillary ads. They're not going to be running pro-environmental protection ads around a midterm election, right? I mean, they're they're going to put their muscle into whatever they think will benefit their bottom line. And there isn't a corresponding corporation, right? There's, there's no one who, who makes as much money on oil not spilling into the Gulf as ExxonMobil makes with taking out oil that might spill into the Gulf, for instance, right? Right. That's true. Um, and so I want to say, I'm sort of make two observations. Okay. The first is, so C- Citizens United recognized a, something. It wasn't the first case to recognize this. Okay. That by limiting, if you limit the money someone can spend on speech, you're basically limiting the speech itself. Um, and that sounds sure. like people, I think that some people, you know, take exception to that. You kind of react against it. Like, of course, money isn't speech. But imagine for a minute a law that Congress passed that said, uh, any newspaper that criticizes the government can only spend $5 a day on their printing presses. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there clearly has to be a connection between money and speech and yes. one that has to be protected. Yeah. And, and I think that those, the downsides there are worth, like it's worth it. You know what I mean? What like, you're saying is, yeah, Citizens United saying there's no money cap to s- political speech by a group. The downside of that is worth ensuring that good news outlets are not limited financially in what they're able to do. Right. And here, here's the important thing is like one way, one thing you could say is, well, okay, let's just make an exception for media, right? Mm, we'll just yeah. say, oh, any old corporation isn't allowed to spend money on speech, but we'll say, oh, if you're a newspaper or, you know, a bona fide media company, then we'll make an exception for you. The problem with that is then it, it entrenches the existing media. I mean, it doesn't allow, uh, upstarts to like come into the marketplace and introduce new and fresh ideas. And, you know, sometimes those are Breitbart's and, you know, you and I kind of agree that that's doesn't, you know, it doesn't push our political dialogue in a great direction, but sometimes those upstarts are, you know, they might be Politico or some of the other blogs, Huffington Post, and having a very sort of free and equal playing field for any group to spend as much or as little as they want on speech, I think in the long run, and this is my view and why I like the Citizens United decision, in the long run, it's going to serve us well in terms of the marketplace of ideas. So we're uh, we're taping this pretty late in a, on a Wednesday evening, and uh, you're like a good chunk of the way through a bottle of wine, I can tell from the video, and I am now on to beer. So I think it's time to talk about Trump. I think we've reached that point. So let me just let me just pour a little more. <laughs> yeah, put that right up against the mic. <laughs> can you get a pouring sound? Okay, can I get that? Let's just hear that. 
So you have just expressed to us, and we're going to come back to it, why you are for a conservative Supreme Court. And I would say at least among evangelicals and most Christians in America, at least among that group and a lot of the GOP electorate in general, Supreme Court is like the number one reason that people are are voting for Trump because they are afraid of the justices that Hillary will put in. So I want to ask you three questions here. Let's make sure we get to all of them. Number one, do you think Trump would put in the kind of justices that you would like? Number two, do you think that Hillary would put in the kind that you don't like? And number three, do you have other reasons, which of course you probably do. Do you have other reasons for not, for not voting for Trump or not thinking that this is quite a reason enough to vote for him? So let's start with the first, which is, do you think that Trump would nominate good conservative justices? So that's the first question. I don't. Um, but here, I mean, that's not necessarily the argument. I don't think that the conservatives who are sort of telling themselves they need to vote for Trump. I don't think it's because they think that he necessarily will. It's more like there's no chance Hillary will. And there's at least some, they're willing to roll the dice on the Trump side. I, my view is that, and I can give reason, give you the reasons for this. The chance of him doing it is pretty low and it doesn't outweigh the other downsides of a President Trump. Let's talk about the other downsides later, but give me your view yeah. on what the chances are that he nominates great conservative justices. So, you know, and also I should say when I when I when I talk about this, I'm this is about the people who they're skeptical of Trump, they don't like him, they're scared of of other aspects of him, but they feel compelled to because like you say the Supreme Court is sort of the key issue that separates Trump and Clinton. I think it's fair to say that Clinton will appoint quote unquote liberal justices. The question that you asked is whether Trump will appoint conservatives. Now I think the chance is pretty slim and I got a couple of reasons. Okay. So the first, the first one is look, Trump, we know that he has zero personal interest in a conservative Supreme Court. Like, he doesn't care about abortion. He doesn't care about gay marriage. He doesn't care about any of that stuff, right? Why do you say he doesn't care about those things? Well, until he decided to run for the Republican nomination, he was an avowed, you know, pro-abortion rights, didn't, like, fine with gay marriage. Like, he has no sort of skin in the game when it comes to the social conservative issues. You're saying to you it seems pretty clear that he's saying what he needs to say to be a GOP candidate on sort of moral issues, but he doesn't, it, there's no real reason to believe that he cares about them personally. Yeah. So, so the Supreme court justices is a great example of that because he releases this list and he's amended it since then of like supposed Supreme court picks. No one does that in their campaign. Like that mm. is an unprecedented move. And Trump did it because he knows or his campaign knows that the Supreme Court is a weakness of his, and he he has to convince, or at least he has to convince conservatives. There's a chance he'll nominate some conservative justices in order to get their swing their votes. Yeah, and so he knows that it's um, an issue, and I think that he really, if you look at his what he's done, he's doing it for the election, right? Yeah, and so the question is, okay, if he if he did it just for the election, what are the chances of him following through on that? when he actually gets elected. And I think it's slim because 
he has no personal interest in it, okay? And we know that Donald Trump is very attuned to what he personally is interested in. Yeah. And the other thing that we know is that he has a list of like policies that he and accomplishments he wants to do in office, like build a wall, start trade wars with everybody, deport yeah. or, you know, deport all these people. And nominating and getting a Supreme Court justice confirmed, it's always the result of deal making. And hmm. here's the question that I think conservatives should ask themselves. When Donald Trump is trying to make a deal with Democrats to get his wall built or his trade deal people, with China through or whatever, what, yeah. what is the f- very first thing he's going to give up? It's <laughs> going to be his Supreme Court pick. Wow. Interesting. Okay? Because he has no personal interest in it. He's already elected. He's already a president. Yes. And he'll yes. spin it as, hey, it's way better than Hillary would have picked. And then he'll seed that to the Democrats in exchange for something that he has to fulfill that's a more explicit campaign promise like immigration or trade. Exactly. Hmm. Um, And the other thing, so that's just sort of like the the cynical, like deal-making side of Donald Trump. And we know that he he loves to make deals. Like he talks about that all the time. Right. (laughs) But the other side of it is we also know that Donald Trump is very interested in um, self-aggrandizement and he's very interested in a strong in power and in magnifying his own power if he becomes president and so that is not consistent with conservative jurisprudence oh interesting because conservative jurisprudence is about limited federal power and so if he has any personal interest in appointing supreme court ju- justices it might actually be in the other direction in appointing justices who are willing to uh, interpret the Constitution in terms of expansive federal power to accomplish specifically the executive branch. Specifically, the executive branch. So you're so what you're saying is eight years of talk from right wing media about all of the abuses of executive power that Obama has has put America through. Let's say for the moment that they're right about that. The first thing Trump will give on is a pro-life justice for a pro-executive power justice, which theoretically the left side of the Supreme Court debate will be happy with. Yes, theoretically. Theoretically, anyway. Yeah, and and that I think that is a perfectly reasonable and likely outcome here. Yeah, wow. which, Which further makes the argument for Trump, for voting for Trump, to get conservative justices um, more and like more unlikely. The other piece of it though, is like, even if Trump was like legit when it comes to like nominating conservative justices, that game does not pan out in the long term. What okay? do you mean? So uh, there was a great article in the LA times by a professor of mine at Berkeley, this guy, John Yu, who's like extraordinarily conservative. Okay. He, he, he probably goes farther right than I do. And, but he, he wrote an article in the New York, in the LA times co-authored an article, which was basically addressing this question, like, you know, why the Supreme court is not a good reason to vote for Trump. And this is sort of the, one of the key facts he had, which I think is really important, which is Republican presidents. Okay have conf- have filled 12 of the 16 Supreme Court vacancies since 1968. Whoa. Okay? Whoa. And only four of those have turned out to be, quote-unquote, real conservatives. Okay? So even if you just take average Joe Republican president, there is only a one in three chance 
that his or her appointee will end up being conservative anyway. Four out of 12. Yeah. So, so here, here are the great examples. So Ronald Reagan, okay. Yeah. Appointed Sandra Day O'Connor and Anthony Kennedy. Okay. They, okay. I think in the grand scheme of things, they're probably more characterized as moderates. Mm -hmm. Definitely not conservatives. Sandra Day O'Connor authored Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which basically was the modern guarantee of abortion rights. Okay. Wow. That's a Reagan appointee. Reagan appointee. Justice Kennedy authored the opinion in Obergefell versus Hodges, which recognized the right to gay marriage. Oh my okay. gosh. So, and the way that my professor, John, you put it was, quote, Trump's outbursts won't persuade the Senate to embrace more conservative nominees where Reagan's sunny optimism and George H.W. Bush's patrician decency failed. Like, do conservatives really think he's going to do a better job than Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush? At convincing the Senate to uh, approve. Yeah. Actual conservative justices. Yeah, of course he would not do as well. Uh, I think that. not. I mean, look at the people that Donald Trump goes to for advice. It's his family. His family is uh, like him. They, they do not... They are not social conservatives. They don't really have skin in the game here. His sister uh, is a um, federal appellate judge who is, by all accounts, extraordinarily left-wing. And mm. if you imagine Donald Trump like deciding who he's going to appoint for the Supreme Court, like I think there's a fair chance he's going to talk to his sister. He's going to talk to his yeah. family. He has nothing invested in a conservative court. Quite the contrary, like I said before. So I just think the chance of him falling through on this ploy to get elected is so slim. I don't see it as outweighing the, the downsides of, a, of President Trump. Wow. Okay. So you already answered my second question, which is, well, you answered it, but I want to ask one follow-up. You, you said, yes, Hillary will choose uh, left-leaning justices, but given the way justices have to be approved by Congress, right. how left-leaning can she appoint like Merrick Garland, uh, Obama's choice by all accounts is old. So he won't last very long and is pretty much center center left from what I've seen. Yeah. So he's not, he wasn't that crazy of a pick. Would Hillary's picks be different or would they be sort of along the lines of Merrick Garland? Um, so it, it, that's actually a good question. It, it depends on what the Senate looks like. Okay. Okay. So, if the Senate is controlled by the Democrats, then I, I think it's I think Clinton is fairly likely to go pretty far left. What does she have? What does the Senate? Is it just a simple majority in the Senate to confirm a yes justice? Okay. I mean there are there are procedural there are procedural things that like minorities in the Senate can do to try and block like filibuster and that kind of thing. Okay. Um, so I, I'm not an expert on the Senate. I know that there are all sorts of crazy arcane procedural ways but that such that such that just you know bernie sanders's nephew who's <laughs> 40 years old he's got 50 years left in him and he's far far left there are some procedures in the process that would disincentivize clinton from choosing yeah. just the most progressive person she could find for instance yeah and that's that's both you know she has to get moderate democrats to go along with her right true those exist yeah. And, and the Republicans, you know, um, to avoid a filibuster and that kind of thing. So uh, if the Republicans still control the Senate after the election, then you're probably going to get more like Merrick Garland type nominees. OK. And, and that wouldn't be the end of, end of the world in terms of 
a lot of the things that constitutional conservatives hold dear. It would mean that we're not going to change any of the, you know, big social issue decisions. Like the dream for social conservatives is like getting the court to reconsider Roe versus Wade. Yeah. To get the court to retract the gay marriage decision. Like no moderate's going to help us out, help out that cause. Right. But then, you know, moderates aren't necessarily going to like dig the hole a lot deeper from Either. that perspective. Right. So it's sort of like more of the status quo in that, in that respect. So I actually think that's a good point. Like we don't know that Hillary Clinton is going to turn the court into like a, like dynamo of like crazy progressive politics. So answer my third question then, if you will, which is what are the other reasons then to not vote for Trump, especially considering that you have pretty low confidence that he would help you out Supreme court wise? And you don't have to spend a lot of time on this because I'm sure a lot yeah. of people have their own list. Yeah. The perspective that I like to focus on is first and foremost foreign policy. And the reason for that is I think a lot of conservatives are telling themselves, look, once he gets elected, we're going to be able to control him. He's going to, the co- Congress can like shape his domestic, his policies and it won't be as bad as everybody thinks it's going to be. Um, but in foreign policy, the Constitution gives very broad powers to the president to act unilaterally and to act in a moment yeah. and to respond in real time. Right. And I think that's the area that troubles me the most because of uh, his temperament and his his unwillingness to ever let even the s- smallest slight go. I think that could be a dangerous combination with some of the um, challenges that we're going to face as a country with an expansionist Russia, terrorism in the Middle East. Some of the things he said about our allies is very problematic. So anyway, foreign policy is a strong, a big concern for me. I think that on the trade issue, I strongly disagree with his approach to trade and protectionism. I'd hope Congress could resist some of that, but if he were to get his way with trade, it would plunge us into another recession. And I have children, I own a house that becomes very real to me. Yeah. And I'm also strong, gravely concerned with his um, temperament and his just the way he lashes out at defenseless people, the way he lashes out at uh, minorities, disabled people. You know, the list goes on and on, everything yeah. that he said. And, and to me, I have a three-year-old daughter, and Hillary Clinton put out this ad, and it's a political ad, but it shows these little girls sitting in front of a TV with like actual footage of Donald Trump talking, and like it just made me nauseous. I mean, for him to be representing me to the rest of the world is like unthinkable. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I don't want to use like too strong language, but um, it, it really troubles me, and it makes I think temperament is extremely important, and it's something that conservatives went on and on about when it came to Bill Clinton and you look at Bill Clinton's foibles compared with Donald Trump and like what he does and what he says, it's like, it seems quaint by comparison Yeah. with Clinton. I disagree with many of her policies. There are a few that I agree with. I mean, she's generally in favor of free trade despite her tack to the left for political expediency with the burners. But you know, I think that's a good thing. I think that she is generally in favor of, uh, free markets. And I like that too. You know, some of the things that she's more moderate on, I appreciate by saying that I would rather have her as a president does not 
it's not the same thing as endorsing her holistically and like yeah. every aspect of sure, her. Sure, sure, yeah. I mean, that's that's the bottom line. I mean, I, I sort of came to this moment when I realized that voting for somebody is not a validation of everything that they have said and stand for. It's really just of my list of people in front of me, who would I prefer being the president? Yeah, I saw a Facebook comment today of a Christian kid who was like, look, I'm going to compromise something of my values if I vote for either of these candidates. And what I thought reading that was like, you know, we have a two-party system. It would be weird if you didn't feel you had to compromise something for one of two options, given the entire political spectrum. A lot of conservatives have been, and this is where the abortion issue comes in, like... I can't compromise on that issue because it's too big for me. Yeah, it's mil- it's like millions of murders, which you can understand, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and so if you have that perspective, just maintaining that is almost worth any cost, right? Yeah. And so, but I think now we're at a moment where that's actually not an issue anymore, unfortunately. We don't have one pro-life candidate versus one pro-choice candidate. Right. We don't have one yeah. candidate that's going to point conservative justices who are going to overturn Roe versus Wade versus a candidate who won't. We have two candidates who are perfectly comfortable with abortion rights and one candidate who has said to get elected that he would appoint conservative justices, but the actual chance of him doing that is vanishingly small. Okay, so I want to do like kind of a speed round, like a lightning round, but Maybe like a lightning and thunder round, so you have a little bit of time to explain yourself. I'm going to coin that, by the way. So I have here nine arguments that I found on like some website, but they're arguments from the left for why it's important to have liberal Supreme Court justices. I am hoping that you will think some of these are at least potentially cogent arguments and some of them are not, but just be honest. So we're just going to go down them uh, one through nine. Number one, we need liberal justices because we need to protect labor and unions in a world of increasing corporate influence. What's your take? I think that's a weak argument because it's based purely on results. Like I like the result of the liberal justices opinion. Um, And the problem is that can backfire. You know, if there's no principle behind it and it's just about the result, then you can just in the next, the next time the court swings against you, they can just decide it the other way. So you'd rather uh, try and get legislation passed, basically, to protect unions rather than uh, Supreme Court decisions. Yeah. I mean, keep in mind, the Supreme Court is profoundly undemocratic. Right. It's literally a group of elites appointed for life. <laughs> yeah, it is the very definition of yeah non-democracy. Number two. There has been a lot of LGBTQ discrimination disguised as religious liberty legislation, and that needs to be curtailed by the court. There's a lot. There's a lot to unpack there because this is where you have this collision of like the right of a private individual to hold certain beliefs mm-hmm. and to act on those beliefs versus the rights of other people, and so we're not talking about a law that like discriminates against LGBT people, right? We're talking about, 
the ability of like, you know, the, the, the case that everyone talks about is like the cake baker to like not bake cake. The cake baker and, appeals all the way up to the Supreme Court and then is is his or her refusal constitutional or not? Yeah, I mean, right. that's the question. And here's the issue. Like, I think that is a good that's a good argument for a liberal Supreme Court if you accept the premise that LGBTQ status is a protected class under the Constitution. Interesting. And the conservative view of the Constitution is that the provisions that guarantee equal protection without regard to race, they are intended to, they're focused on race, okay? And the, um, the problem with sort of adding other categories to that that aren't part of the original sort of intent of those provisions is like, where does it end? If you can just sort of interpret them to protect any old sort of type of person uh, who's been the victim of discrimination, so to speak, like there's no sort of limit on the court just doing whatever they want to do. And then we run into conflict with the undemocratic nature of the court and imposing a certain view of morality on like the nation that can run up against like pretty fundamentally held beliefs. Okay. I want to acknowledge that that is very complicated, but I also just want to sort of note a brief counter, which is that it sounds like you're making the argument. It's a slippery slope and slippery slope is of course, one of the logical fallacies of Aristotle. And just because it might be hard to determine other categories besides sexual orientation does not in itself mean that sexual orientation should not be equated to race. Like you can have an argument for why sexual orientation should be treated equal protection like race that excludes say, I don't know, people who want to have incest or people who have been foreclosed upon or you come up with any kind of, thing you want. I mean, you just could make an argument that, look, it's unchosen. You could make the argument that it's unchosen and inherited much like race and therefore determines is, you know, should have the same protection under the law. I'm just going to note that as a counter argument. Do you think that's at least possibly cogent? Yeah, it is possibly cogent. I think this is just one of those areas where you, you're going to have a profound, disagreement between people because yeah it's like abortion it's like either you believe that a fetus has some sort of dignity or you don't or you could believe that it has some rights but less rights than the fully formed adult that it's contained within right but it it turns out to just be sort of an article of faith right right sure there's no there's no scientific answer there's no it, it, it comes down to belief. And so sure. either you believe that someone being gay is like an immutable characteristic of them and that it's good for them to sort of realize that and act that way. Or you believe that it's a disorder that should be resisted. And like, I want to put, I want to push back here though. I mean, I understand yeah. that there might be that divide culturally for a person, yeah. but I don't know that that delineation need define the legal conversation. I think that you could say, you could, for instance, be a justice on the Supreme court and you could say, I'd like to bring in some scientists, 
some, uh, some sociologists, some geneticists, whatever, show me the available data for whether or not sexual orientation is chosen or whether it is inherited. And you could come to a probabilistic sort of argument on that. I don't know what that data would show, but you could imagine someone saying, you know what? It seems very few people choose this. It seems to be almost as immutable as race. And therefore it's, it is deserving of the same legal protection, whether or not it is a disorder. You, you can imagine. Yeah. Here's the, here's the difference. Okay. Um, by the way, you set me up for a bunch of quick takes, and this is turning into like a very deep It's like issue. lightning and <laughs> long thunderstorm round. That's okay, because we're getting to good arguments, yeah, and that's To, to be honest, I think this is the, for me personally, this is the very toughest issue when okay. it comes to court, is yeah. gay rights. Okay? Because um, I, I, I'm Catholic, okay? Yeah. I follow the teaching of the church. Homosexual conduct is just like not consistent with the teaching of the Catholic church. Yeah. Right. Gay marriage is not consistent with the teaching of the church. And so it's tough for someone like me because I want to recognize, um, a distinction between the law and my civic engagement and the teaching of the church. Like I would never want like a law that says you have to join the Catholic church. I think right, it's horribly right. destructive. So this is an area that's tough. Okay. So when you talk about, but I, I will say that, um, I think whether or not it's a mutable characteristic is not, it, it's not important. Okay. Okay. I think that it's whether or not the conduct is morally okay or not. That that is what the Supreme court decision should be based on. Well, were, no. were there to be one? No, I think that the Supreme court decision should not even address the issue. My, my personal preference is that. Uh, states should be able to decide this issue through the democratic process, okay? Because it's such a such a inherently complicated and morality based issue, and that uh, it needs to be decided through consensus. It's different than race in that respect, in your mind. Yes. Okay. Um, and it's different from race in the respect that um, race, like it doesn't matter what you do, you're always a certain race. Whereas as, t- as harsh as this sounds, like it is true that one could be gay and not have sex with men. Right. I mean, plenty of gay men father families and yes. fig- figure out a way and, to have children with their wives. And then, you know. And plenty of gay men are Catholic priests and celibate. Right. And the Catholic Church supports them. And that's very harsh and very counter. Right. I mean, like, that's a hard thing to, to but talk about. But we're not talking about yeah. all of the issues. We're just talking about the legal aspect of that. And you're correct that legally a gay person can refrain from having sex, whereas a black person cannot refrain from being black. Being black, yeah. Okay. So I'll take that. I, th- I think that you and I would both agree this is thorny. And you could yeah. you can see arguments on both sides. But let's move on because I have a few more of these uh, arguments. Okay. Argument number three, we need liberal justices to maintain the separation of church and state. And the example given was, uh, opening prayers for like a state, you know, legislature or a city council meeting or something like that. I think that's a fairly good argument. Um, I'm not sure that the breakdown between liberal and conservative when it comes to justices really, um, tracks the same way that you would think based on the politics. Okay. Um, but in terms of like prayers before, uh, 
legislatures and that kind of thing. Like, I don't know offhand who voted which way on those decisions. Yeah. Um, but um, I'm not sure that liberal versus conservative jurisprudence really plays a huge role there. All right. Argument number four, women's health. And I have written here uh, against attempts to remove women from Obamacare or, quote, give more rights to a zygote than the woman whose body it inhabits. I don't I think I kind of know where you're going to go on this one. I think you're just asking me about abortion. What about the argument that keeping states from removing pregnant women from Obamacare is worth having a liberal justices for? Uh, I think that's a good argument. Okay. All right. Great. We're going to just call that one good. Okay. Uh, argument number five is Citizens United again. But, so I guess we don't need to talk about that. We spent quite a bit of time talking about that. But I'll just summarize your view and say, you just think that Citizens United is worth the collateral damage for the protection of the press and free speech. Absolutely. Okay. Fair enough. Good job. <laughs> yeah, dude, I'm listening. Okay. Argument number six, environmental stuff. And here's a quote. Uh, This was from February, so this happened back in February. Less than a week ago, a five to four ruling by the Supreme Court temporarily blocked President Obama's climate change regulations from taking effect. Turns out this was about the coal industry and regulating or curbing emissions. So the, the court granted a stay or something like that where they allowed the company to keep going with their coal mining even though it looked like they were going to be up against Obama's climate change regulations. So let me just say this. A lot of, a lot of these quick takes yeah. um, are about the results. Yeah, that's fine. And so my, my yeah. response is going to be the same a lot of the time, which is I don't necessarily think that like um, it's a bad thing to empower us to address climate change, but looking at it that way, it comes from a position of like results oriented next four years, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And so I I just think that's not a good role for the court to take. So you shouldn't. Yeah. So this argument, you just say it's too short sighted. Yeah. I think it's, 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 it's for an undemocratic institution like the court, we should not be evaluating them based on the particular results of like one decision or the other. Should we evaluate the Supreme court on issues of climate change or are they exempt from that? I don't think that I don't think we should evaluate the court on how it approaches climate change. I think it should be, does the court, um, interpret laws correctly or not? All right. Great. Argument seven, Obamacare. That's all I wrote. (laughs) Is that self-explanatory? So here's what I'm going to say about that. So a lot of conservatives were very upset with the Justice Roberts sort of switching teams, so to speak. For Obamacare, yeah. And and going with Obamacare. And the the issue there was the individual mandate. So this is what everyone was so concerned about. And to, to recap that individual mandate, if I'm not mistaken, is because it costs everyone who has health insurance a bunch of money when people don't have it and we have to still treat them legally. Therefore everyone must get it that is able to, because that will, that's more fair for society at large. Is that the individual mandate? And specifically, is it okay for Congress to say you have to pay extra, whatever it is, $2,000 in taxes if you choose not to get health insurance? So there, there's a penalty enforced for not getting health insurance 
And that is to get people to do it so that costs will be more evenly distributed. Okay. What do you think about this? So the, this, this requires getting into like some complicated issues with constitutional law, but the bottom line is that, um, the court and justice Roberts basically said, we're not going to view this as a quote unquote penalty. We're going to view this as a tax. So they skirted it. Yeah. They kind of skirted it. And I actually, I kind of agree with the approach. Like, okay. I, I don't think that the label given to it should really matter as much as what is actually happening. Okay. And it really is an extra tax you pay for not having health insurance. So I think under existing precedent, it was probably the right decision. And I know that sets me apart from a lot of conservatives, but to be clear, you're not saying that you like the result. So, cause a lot of your critique yeah. earlier is, is yeah. a results based. So explain to me why what you just said is yeah. different than I'm not accusing you, but why is it different than I want the result to be everyone has to get health insurance? What what are you saying that's different than a results based argument? Well, what's inter- what's different is that I actually dislike Obamacare. Hmm. I think it was bad policy. Okay, and so there's a part of me that would have been gleeful if the court had struck it down. Yeah, because if they had struck down the individual mandate, the whole thing would have collapsed. Okay, right, um, but. I sort of begrudgingly acknowledge that it probably is within Congress's power to do to, what yeah, they did. Yeah, to tax somebody who so, necessarily will drain public funds with their emergency health needs. So I'm willing to I'm willing to say I'm not going to resort to the Supreme Court to make to sort of make happen the policy changes that okay, I want. Okay, so in fact you're living out your creed to yeah. not be results based with the court. I don't want the Supreme Court to strike down Obamacare because I think Obamacare largely was within the power of Congress and consistent with the Constitution. I dislike the policy, and I think the proper way to uh, address a policy that you dislike is through the democratic process, yeah. not through a lawsuit before the Supreme Court. Okay, wow. Well said, Joe. Okay, we got two more <laughs> arguments to get hot takes on, and then I'm going to let you finish that bottle of wine. So. Here's the second to last one. And this is the one I'm actually most interested in your take on voting rights, voter ID, gerrymandering, which is redistricting areas to get certain people, especially in the house elected. Um, And in 2013, a chunk of the voting rights act of 64 was shut down by Supreme court. And then more recently we've got the stuff going on in North Carolina, which to my understanding is, the North Carolina state Supreme court ruled that the Republican party in North Carolina was actively engaged in voter ID rules to suppress minority votes, that they had evidence that their express purpose for these voter ID laws was to suppress minority votes and get Republicans elected. So this is, a very hot topic right now, voter rights. Uh, you heard, you've seen Trump calling for, Hey, they got to have IDs. I mean, how do you know if there's no voter fraud, despite the fact that voter fraud is like 0.001% of votes or something. So it's becoming a polarized issue that seems to be maybe not so polarizing 10 or 15 years ago. So the argument here on the left is, Hey, this is, serious democracy stuff. We do not want, uh, the right taking over voter ID. What do you think? 
So I think that's a, first I will say it still smacks a little bit of results oriented. Okay. Fair approach. But I, I think that, um, the voting rights act is an important, is important legislation. I'm not sure it's perfect. I'm not an expert in that area, Yeah, but I think it's a good argument, um, to say, look, we need justices who are going to support the voting rights act as it was written by Congress Hmm. because it's so crucial to democracy. Yeah. Um, I, you know, my question would just be, you know, would be to scrutinize whether the court was actually following the constitution and instead of reaching results oriented outcome with some of these cases, it's really hard because, um, the legal test can be very squishy and very policy oriented. And so it's hard to decide whether someone is actually doing results oriented jurisprudence or actually trying to follow the law. Um, I think that voting rights, if you just talk about the politics of it, it's a blind spot for conservatives. Like a lot of these laws are, I seem to be at least to me like clear attempts to like reduce turnout for Democrats, which happen to be minorities. Right. And so that's a problem, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I've, I have great sympathy for that. So, um, that, that's an issue that I appeals to me more than some of the other issues you raised, but it's still sort of a results oriented question. And so your thing is just, well, okay. But so I, I understand why you want to say that stuff should go through Congress, but it does seem like just reading a headline, you know, North Carolina court Supreme court smacks this down and finds evidence of clear racism among GOP. I mean, that feels like a win just like for the world. Right. And it, it also seems like a courtroom might be a good place to do that. It's almost like a criminal case. So whereas most of the time I'm, I'm tracking pretty well with your, it shouldn't be results based in this one. It seems a little different. Am I getting that wrong? No, there is a difference too, where the voting rights act cases, Congress had actually passed a law. And so it's the court severely curtailing the effectiveness of that law based on constitutional principles. Okay. That, that raises a red flag for me because I like a court that doesn't, that lets Congress do its thing. Yeah except in extraordinary circumstances. And it's not clear to me that the Voting Rights Act cases are a circumstance where we need the intervention of the court to curtail the power of Congress. Last argument. The ongoing hearings about Obama's immigration executive orders. Now, this is one where I don't know if you're going to say that's results-based because the constitutionality of these executive orders or where that intersects with Congress or whatever. So I'm really curious what you think. Yeah. Um, and let's, let's review a, what those were. He, he signed one that basically said, if you were brought here under the age of 16, you have a, you have a right to stay or you have a path to citizenship. Is that right? It sounds right. Okay. Something, something to that effect. Right. Okay. The dreamers. So what do you think about the argument that if you believe that that was a good executive order, You should have liberal justices to uphold that. So again, I think the question is more, do you believe that the president should have that power? You know, abstract it from the, so we're we're, we're one step down the line to say he should, and this is what he did. But if Trump was president, we wouldn't want maybe him to have that power. And really the only thing that the Supreme court 
addresses is whether or not he has the power. Right. So that's, that's exactly right. Um, now in terms of my understanding of like executive power in the constitution, it's not clear to me that Obama does not have the power to do that. It seems to me like he's, the president does have what's called prosecutorial discretion. Um, and the executive branch, the president is like the prosecutor of the federal government. So it's not clear to me that he lacks that power to say, well, I don't, I'm not going to enforce this law in this way. Um, conservative, lots of conservatives disagree with me on that. Um, but I do think the proper question is, should a president have the authority to refuse to enforce a law that he disagrees with? And you've got to abstract it out to that level if you're talking about the Supreme Court. And so, you know, maybe the answer is yes. Um, but, you know, imagine President Trump. And maybe that's okay, you know. Maybe um, in the long run, it's better to allow the president to have that discretion um, because on balance, it allows um, in extreme circumstances, the president to refuse to enforce an unjust law. And, and Congress has ways to to assert themselves. They can, for example, cut off funding. You know, Congress has absolute authority over funding. So if the president's doing something, they really refusing to enforce the law, they can say, we're not going to fund you in this respect. Um, so there, there are ways that the political process can resolve those things. I think that's the bottom line. Like I like, I like letting the political process with democratically elected people kind of work things out as much as possible. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks to Joe for being on the program. Again, if you have any follow-up questions, you can email them to us at depolarizedpodcast at gmail.com or join the Facebook group, Depolarized Podcast Discussion Group. And there are show notes for this episode up at depolarizedpodcast.com. We have the study that Joe mentioned about the bias towards preschool children and possibly some other stuff. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week.